Let's get to the scripture. Molly, put this up on the screen if you would. Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In this series, we've been asking ourselves the question, I'm a Christian, what do I do now? We've been trying to find satisfying answers to that what now question. And as we've been looking at New Testament scriptures over the last couple of weeks, we are hearing that the answer is, what should we do? We should develop Christian character. We should become more transformed into the person that God created us to be. And by the way, that looks a lot like Jesus, if you're trying to track that. And it prepares us for the ultimate goal of reigning with Christ in God's restored new heavens and new earth. Like we talked about, a bit of a mystery, but that's our destination. That's where we're going. And here in Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of what happens when we do that, when that transformation starts to happen. He tells the church in Philippi, the Christian virtues that you develop now will shine in the world like stars in the sky. Your kindness will be this shimmering light in a dark place. Your gentleness and patience are going to be wildly attractive in a world full of people who have given up on trying to not grumble or not argue with each other. Your compassion and your forgiveness are going to be like a refreshing, cold cup of water to a world that is dehydrated because it lacks the living water of Jesus Christ. Christians are like these angled mirrors that we put up on stage and that I, I demonstrated for you a few weeks ago. We reflect the praises of creation up to God, and we reflect the blessing and the goodness of God out into the world. We shine among them. We shine in the world like stars in the sky. This is a beautiful idea. This is a great, what do we do? This is what we do. Paul probably got this idea from Peter, who said this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's good stuff. I'm glad Peter told that to Paul. But Peter didn't make that up. Peter got that from Jesus. We heard it in the passage that Michaela read for us earlier, and here it is again. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Well, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Christian character lights the way for people who need a pathway to Jesus Christ. I have a friend named Marion, and she's part of a church, and she works with their, their children's ministry there. And she told me this story about how she was out the other day, and she was actually at a TJ Maxx. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a TJ Maxx. It's okay to admit it. That's a good store. 
good deals at TJ Maxx. Well, she was there, and she started chatting up with this woman that she'd never met before. Come to find out, this lady who was there with her young daughter, they were new in town. They just moved to the area. And Marion said, oh, you know, like, if you're looking for a church, I'm involved here. We'd love to have you. And they came. She invited them, and they actually showed up. And now this mom and daughter are hearing about Jesus for the first time because Marion gave her a simple invitation. Come to my church. And because I'm sure it has to do with that light that the woman saw in her. Marion's sweet, gentle, humble spirit that reflects the nature of Jesus Christ. And as Marion finished telling me this story, she said something that kind of stuck with me. She said, well, you know, everyone needs to know Jesus. Sometimes we just need to draw them a map. I like that. You may have noticed as we read this scripture that Paul says, we are to shine among them like stars among a warped and crooked generation. Give me a little nod if that that phrase stood out to you. A warped and crooked generation. Like, what? That's kind of harsh, Paul. What are you saying? Everybody who doesn't know Jesus is warped and crooked? And we might say, well, pretty much everybody who knows Jesus, too, is kind of warped and crooked. But you may hear this and think, that's kind of harsh, because I don't know if I want to go down that road. I know a lot of people who are good people, And just because they don't believe the same things that Christians believe doesn't mean they're warped and crooked. You might say, I could give you lots of examples of atheists that I know who love their spouses and take care of their kids and are good neighbors and are kind and say, I know some of those as well. And that leads me to kind of realize that if we hear this series, we're talking about Christian character, it might be tempting to hear the things that I'm saying here and go, oh, okay, I get what we're doing. We're basically just doing the Christian version of what everybody else in the world is doing, right? Which is basically essentially just trying to be a better person. Is that what we're doing? That's not actually what we're doing. But it does raise the question that I want us to tackle this morning, and that is how are Christian virtues different than secular virtues? What makes them distinct? Uh, We first have to acknowledge when we raise this question is that there is some overlap between Christian virtues and just virtues in general. Take uh, love, for example. Kindness. Generosity. Everybody's okay with those things. If you show that to someone, they're going to be like, that's great, I am okay with that virtue. They're Christian virtues, but they're also virtues that are praised and sought after by the non-Christian world. But when we talk specifically about Christian virtue... We have to clarify that we're, we're not just saying, no, we're all going to work on being a better person just like everybody else is. Yes, there is some overlap, but these two ideas are going to part ways at some point. It's like if you're taking a trip from here down south to Los Angeles, and you decide, I'm going to take the bus. And you're riding on the bus, you look around and you realize, hey, there's a lot of people that are going to Los Angeles, just like me. We're going to the same place. But then after a couple hours... You might notice a couple people will pick up their suitcases, get off the bus at Bakersfield. And then a little bit later, you might see somebody pick up their stuff, get off the bus around Santa Clarita. And it it might occur to you, I thought that these people and I were going to the same place, but we have different end goals. We have different destinations. In the same way, cultivating Christian virtues has a specific goal that is different than virtue in general. 350 years before Jesus, there was this guy named Aristotle, and he kind of set the standard 
in the ancient world for what the end goal of human flourishing was supposed to be and what virtues you needed to get to the place you were trying to go. So in the first century Roman world, during the time of Jesus, it was already understood that there were four cardinal virtues. And these were set out by Aristotle and his followers. And they are courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. Prudence, same in order, courage, justice, prudence, and temperance. You might think, there's nothing wrong with those things. That's good. You know, that, that seems like it will lead to a good life. You'll be happy and you'll be well-respected, and that's what Aristotle thought. So initially, that's that overlap that I was talking about. Cultivating characteristics like the ones that Aristotle mentions, that sounds like that could be good. Maybe I will have a happy life. Maybe I will be well-respected in society. It might even impact some of the people around me in positive ways. Yes, there's some overlap. But for Aristotle and most ancient thinkers, the end goal was always the self. It was very important to ancient people to be remembered after they died and gaining a reputation in society as this virtuous person. That was always the end goal. Another way of putting this is that Aristotle got off the bus in Bakersfield. He was never intending to get to Los Angeles. And the end goal for Christians is being fully formed into the people that God created us to be and serving with God in God's restored kingdom. And Christian virtues, we need to be clear, these are never intended to glorify ourselves. Like, oh, what a better person I've become. I hope everybody notices. Christian virtues will always look upward and look outward. Remember the angled mirrors, up and out, before they look inward. That's something we need to understand. We're not just going to be gazing at ourselves in the mirror all day long and saying, good for me. And another way that Christian virtues are distinct is that some of them are just plain rejected by those who don't have the same end goal as Christians do. I want to take a moment now, and I want to highlight four uncelebrated virtues that were really unpopular during the time of Jesus, and I think that they're just as unpopular today. So, four uncelebrated virtues. The first one is humility. Humility, not something that everybody is chasing after. We've talked about this before. I mentioned it earlier even. In the ancient world, there was, it was kind of like an honor-shame culture. Gaining honor and avoiding shame at all costs was the most important thing. And this made it so that if you promoted yourself and said like, hey, uh, people aren't noticing how honorable I am, I better help them out. I'm going to do a little bit of self-promotion. That was totally understandable. If you could have a statue that was carved of you after you die, or if you could have your name inscribed on a plaque that was stuck on a building that you helped build or that you helped finance, that was it. That's how you would live on. That's how you would be remembered. There was an emperor named Augustus, and he wrote a whole book about his accomplishments. This is why I'm so great. Hope you read my book. But then he got worried, hey, maybe this book will get lost. Maybe it'll get burned up in a fire. So you know what he did? He took the book about how great he was, and he had it inscribed on stones, like this series of stones, down by this very, very public thoroughfare. Now, everybody will know what a great ruler I was. This was a common thing in the ancient world. Become the hero in society. That was the final destination. So think about humility in that culture. It's kind of a non-starter. 
And our culture today, I think, struggles with the same kind of thing. We are a celebrity-honoring culture, and social media has made it so that we can all become celebrities, even if it's just in our own little circles, letting people know the good things that we do, highlighting our, our good things and downplaying our flaws. Humility is not celebrated or encouraged or chased after in our culture. I think at best it is tolerated. And if it happens to come by, we say, oh, good for them. But humility is a Christian virtue that does not get off the bus in Bakersfield. Humility maintains the standard that it sees in Jesus Christ, who is somebody who took off his outer clothes and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on the ground and he washed the filthy feet of the people who would betray him just hours later. And he was the kind of person that would humble himself to death, even death on a cross, and embrace the humiliation and the shame of the crucifixion. Humility is a Christian virtue. The second one I want to talk about is patience. Patience in the ancient world is a lot like patience in our world today. Everybody's kind of okay if somebody wants to develop patience, but we'd all prefer that somebody else develops it first. Uh, if you want evidence that our culture doesn't value waiting for something, you can just look at the debt crisis. Somewhere along the way, we kind of all bought into this philosophy that you deserve to have what you want now, and you can worry about how to pay for it later. And Christians even buy into this get-it-quickly-have-it-now culture. An example of this is when we, uh, we talk about the Christian virtues, and we say, hey, how come these aren't coming more quick? God, wh what's happened? I prayed for humility, or I prayed for kindness 10 minutes ago. How come I'm not more... Humble. Where's that patience that I ordered? I need that here right away. That uh, doesn't really work. I want to give you a, a list of some things that could potentially make you impatient. Not because I want you to experience impatient, but I want you to say, ah, yeah, that drives me crazy. Here's a few things that I thought of. Think about being put on hold. You're calling up to get information, and they say, just hold. Now you're listening to music you don't like. You're waiting on somebody that may or may not come back. That makes us very impatient. How many of you get impatient if somebody doesn't reply to an email within one hour? Me and my mom, apparently. Everybody else is a, a lot more patient than we are. How about if somebody doesn't text you back after one minute? That can be very frustrating. What if the package that you ordered was supposed to arrive today, and you look on your screen, it's, it's supposed to be here. It's not on my porch. Where did it go? What happened to it? Think about flight delays or cancellations. Think about sitting in traffic. Think about the person in front of you in the grocery store who forgot one item and the checker says, hey, you know what, that's okay. We'll send somebody to go get it for you. So now everybody's just waiting and looking at them and, and they're standing there going, sorry. That might take two minutes, but it feels like forever. I put this question, what makes you impatient to the Facebook community? Speaking of social media and everybody having their say. And this is some of the things people said, these things make me impatient. Uh, the very first answer I got was people, so you may be able to relate to that. Waiting in the doctor's office, people that run late. One person said, people who immediately ask for help before making any effort to solve the problem on their own first. Uh, my brother-in-law lives in Oregon, and he said, Washington drivers. <laughs> Somebody else said, waiting in a long line. 
slow walkers at Costco, uh, surprises, unprofessionalism, traffic, being around impatient people. Uh, I, I put this question on Facebook, and one reply was just, Facebook uh, makes me impatient. Somebody said waiting. That one's kind of on the nose there. Uh, people, other people in any surroundings who have disregard for anyone else. Rudeness. Uh, waiting for dessert to be served, somebody said. One person said stupid people. I was like, ooh, that's pretty harsh, but yeah, we can maybe be honest and relate to that. Inconsiderate people. I think four out of the, the, the several answers that I got, four people just said people. That was all that they said. Yeah, it's hard to do patience when there's so many people in the world to have to be patient with. So I, have I made my case? Do you guys want more evidence? I, you probably have your own. But the point is we are an impatient culture. We want things fast, and we want them now. And if you want to develop patience, that's on you. But I got places I got to be. But patience remembers Jesus' parable about the persistent widow. You remember this lady whose son was in jail? She goes to the judge, show mercy on my son. No. Or maybe even no reply. Next day, help my son. No response. Third day, help my son. Day after day, persistence and patience. This is what Jesus tells us the kingdom is like. This is what we should be striving for. Patience is a Christian virtue. There's four, so there's two more. Speaking of patience and cultivating patience in our life, our, ne our next uncelebrated virtue is chastity. Chastity, that's not a word you hear very often. You might be thinking, like, are you talking about the chastity that I'm thinking? Like chastity belt, uh, like promise rings, and like sex is only supposed to be within marriage. Uh, that's exactly what we're talking about. So let's, let's talk about this. In the first century... Roman world, the general philosophy about sex was get as much of it as you possibly can. Those were the rules. That was the attitude of ancient people. Having multiple partners was common, and it was expected. Uh, sadly, the biggest concern in that culture, if somebody was going to have an affair or be with somebody outside of marriage, it wasn't the broken relationship concern. The biggest concern was the hassle of having a jealous spouse that you just kind of have to deal with, to keep quiet. Today's culture, I think, is just as dismissive with chastity as it is with patience. It says the same thing about sex as it does about credit cards. You can have what you want now, and you can worry about how to pay for it later. And we hear the voice of Freud saying, ah, oh, sex is unavoidable. It's at the core of everything. You can't fight it. And then we hear the voice of Darwin saying, well, it's all about biology anyway. So we should not resist or temper our urge to procreate, but it's against this raging current of thought in our culture that Jesus says the thing that we heard him say last week. And I'll refresh your memory in case you forgot. Mark chapter 7, verse 20, he was talking about the sicknesses of the hearts and the things that really defile you are the things that come out of you and not the things you put into you. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And look, what's the first example that he gives in this list? Say it with me. Sexual immorality. That's the first thing we see. In his book, After You Believe, uh, N.T. Wright says this about this quote from Jesus. 
Here, Jesus is firmly endorsing the ancient Jewish prohibition on sexual relationships of any sort outside of the lifelong marriage of a man and a woman. And then he goes on in the book to say this. The church is often called a killjoy for protesting against sexual license. But the real killing of joy comes with the grabbing of pleasure. As with credit card usage, the price tag is hidden at the start, but the physical and emotional debt incurred will take a long time to pay off. Chastity. Unpopular? Absolutely. But it remains a Christian virtue. Last one I want to talk about is charity. This is the fourth of our four uncelebrated virtues. If you read books on history about why Christianity spread, it's fun because it shouldn't have spread. Christianity should have fizzled out. It was the things that it was doing, the, the way that it meshed and, and actually didn't mesh with culture should have caused people to just turn the other way and walk away from it. But instead, Christianity grew, even though Christians were persecuted, even though it was weird and suspect at the time. And the people who study this say one of the main reasons we think Christianity grew in spite of all the odds against it was because of the sacrificial acts of charity that Christians did. And when I say charity, when I'm talking about the early Christians and the way they practiced charity, I'm not just saying writing a check to a helping organization every once in a while. I'm talking about Christians who would go to the trash heap and they would get babies who were discarded, babies who were unwanted, and they would say, these are our babies now. We're going to love them and we are going to raise them. That's the kind of charity I'm talking about. I'm talking about there was a plague in ancient Turkey and you found Christians who were the ones who were going to the sick and caring for them and not abandoning them, while the rich people and the well-to-do and even the doctors who were trained in medical practices were gathering up their stuff and their families and splitting. That's the kind of charity that I'm talking about. That's the kind of light shining in the world like stars among a warped and crooked generation that guided people to Jesus, that made it so that we're still talking about Jesus today. The Christianity is this force that can't be reckoned with when people start doing what we were designed to do. So charity was and is a Christian virtue. So to go back where we were a little bit ago, no, we're not just talking about being better people here, trying to be nicer, trying to be kinder, trying to be more uh, relatable. We're talking about a specific goal of living the lives that God has called us to. And we're talking about a more complete version of human flourishing than Aristotle ever even considered. And we're talking about a new way to be human that a lot of people will never discover because they get off the bus at Bakersfield. So what happens when we do this? When this is done right, what is the result? When we cultivate and commit to the Christian virtues, even these ones that are unpopular and uncelebrated, what will happen? My hope, I think God's hope, is that people will come to know Christ. When we reflect the nature of God into the world, when we shine like those stars in the world, then people will draw closer to God. And you already know this, because you've seen this happen in this church, and maybe even in your life. Al Higdon was attracted to the joy and the work ethic of John Rogers. And one day he said, why, why are you different? What's different about you? And John Rogers said, Jesus Christ. 
Al Higdon came to know Jesus through John. You guys know Dusty and Shelley Rhodes? Several years ago, they had a son who died in a tragic car crash. And this church reached out to them. And we sent them cards, and we sent them meals, and we showed them love, and we said, we're praying for you. And they came to know Christ through those efforts. My dad came to know Christ because he saw Jesus in my mom. He wasn't interested in faith or religion. But after my mom got baptized, my dad started noticing. And then he eventually joined this men's basketball league with a bunch of Christian guys who were shining like stars on the basketball courts. He started going to a men's Bible study, started getting answers to the questions that he had, and he came to know Jesus through those efforts. And this lady and her daughter that I mentioned earlier at the TJ Maxx, they are coming to know Jesus because Marion asked her if she wanted to come get involved. It's a simple invitation. This passage we looked at at the beginning tells us, tells us to shine like stars in the sky. I want you to think this morning, I want you to ask yourself, who is your angled mirror pointed at? Who is somebody who has probably already seen the light of Christ in the way you live your life and the hope that you have in Jesus? Who is somebody you already know who would listen if you wanted to talk to them about the Lord? Who would probably say yes if you invited them to prayer or to church or to have a, a deeper and more meaningful conversation? Who is that person? Next week, we're going to talk about how the Christian virtues are lived out specifically in the church. And in case we think that this whole thing is just a self-improvement project to make ourselves a little more standable, we're going to see that the church is a necessary training gym for developing Christian character. And again, ultimately, these, these virtues don't just serve ourselves. It's not a mirror that's looking at you. It glorifies God, shines the light of Christ into the world. So that's next week. I'm excited for that. But as we close out today, the last thing I want to do is I want to play you a song. This is a song called The Stars and the Moon, and uh, it, it was written by my daughter, Eleanor. She used to sing it to our other kids, and uh, we recorded it. So you're going to hear Ellie's voice, then you're going to hear Le uh, Leah's voice, and it's real sweet, and it's real cute. But the point isn't just end the sermon in a cute way. I want, while this song is playing, I want you to do what I ask. Take a moment to reflect, to not just think from your brain, but like call on God's spirit to say, hey, put somebody in mind. Call to mind somebody in my life who is ready to hear about Jesus. Who's that, that, that angled mirror is already aimed at because of a good relationship I have with them. And then ask God to give you an opportunity to share with them. Maybe it's already there. Maybe we're just going to be praying for the courage to live it out. Maybe you invite them to ask how you can pray for them. Maybe you invite them to come to this church. Maybe it's somebody who already knows Jesus, but it's somebody with whom you need to take a step toward reconciliation. That's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit is I don't know what's going to come to mind during this prayer time, uh, and it may surprise us, and I'm totally okay with that. But I want you now, as I play this song, to ask God to reveal somebody to you that you can shine the light of Christ toward. Let me pray, and then Molly, you can go ahead and start the song. God, again, I thank you for uh, the way your word challenges us, the things you reveal to us in times like this. And I pray that our hearts are open to transformation, to change, to challenges, uh, even if it takes some work, even if it costs us something. I pray that we will join you in your mission to shine uh, the, the light of the creator 
into this world. Uh, May we be your humble servants. May we do your will, uh, whatever shape or form it, it, uh, it takes. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.